Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to No Password Required, a podcast dedicated to exploring the minds and personalities that make up the field of cybersecurity. I'm your host, Ernie Ferraresso, and with me as always, Jack Clabby, a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA in Tampa, and Pablo Torres, a senior cloud security engineer at Second Watch. On the podcast today, we'll chat with Serge Jorgensen, the founding partner and CTO of the Silent Group, sometimes described as a James Bond type cybersecurity expert. Serge has provided response and remediation guidance to multi-billion dollar international espionage and cybersecurity attacks. He also provides strategic direction and active oversight in computer security, incident response, and counter cyber warfare. Serge, we look forward to a great conversation, but first, hello to my co-hosts, Jack and Pablo. Gentlemen, hello. Ernie, great to be here today. Pablo, how are you? I am doing quite swell, living the dream. Every day. That's it, right? We get to do this, we do do what you like, you don't work a day in your life. That's right. We, uh, we had a, it's an email earlier uh, going around about this new study that Proofpoint released, which is fascinating for a number of reasons, but it's about using journalist uh, Twitter and email accounts as a vector of compromise. And then you know, sort of exploring why, you know, why journalists in particular are targets for, for hackers, both to, to compromise and impersonate or to compromise and sort of take data from. So the um, it's, it's worth reading its entirety because of the overlap between the sort of technical aspects of the hack and also the social aspects of the hack. There's a few aspects to it, but really the national nation state actors were trying to, one, one way they were doing it is they're just creating sort of reporter personas on social media and then using that to reach out, you know, you know, there's a lot of different news media that are out there now. And so you're not familiar with the name of every one of them. Um, and often reporters are on deadline. And so if you pretend to be a newspaper reporter without hacking anyone, you can often get folks in academia um, uh, or policy experts to talk to you because they think they're talking to a legitimate journalist. Additionally, there's actual hacking, probably the most common, I think, from the report was hacking of these journalist email accounts directly. So these journalists are used to, you know, why does it succeed? These journalists are used to talking to people using fake email accounts, anonymous sources. They're used to working on deadline. So they work in a speedy way and they're used to trying to seek exclusive access. And so for a social engineering fraud, a journalist who may, you know, who's working under these constraints can be a good, um, can be a good uh, target. Then when the bad guy's into, let's say an email account, they can poke around and uh, and see all sorts of goodies from anonymous sources, from uh, aggregations and news sources. The thing I liked the best about it, though, was that one of the more successful hacks was to pretend to be Twitter and tell these journalists, somebody logged in from Moscow, right? And of course, the journalist is like, oh, no, if my Twitter goes down, I'm done, right? It's just, this is how I get the word out about myself. So that was an, an exploit there. Uh, you know, it... it Journalists, like high-powered journalists who are subject to this are smart people, discerning people, using a lot of critical thinking, but even they are going to 
fall for a hack like that because they think, right? If your Twitter account, Twitter account get hacked, that's like me not having access to Coke Zero. You know, it's like um, mm -hmm. you can't you know, do it. The, the sine qua non, as the French say. I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. That is what do you, how it. Oh, what do you guys think? What do you guys think of this uh, report? I think it's. I mean, it's really. It's it's from a just like I'll call it a TTP. It's it's there's like nothing new with it in the sense, but uh, it's going after new people. And it's and it's taking advantage of, like you're saying, Jack, it's that that putting that uh, that sense of urgency uh, in order to gain access. And then once they're in there, it's just a unique. It's something new and different, uh, you know, because they're going in for different reasons. Right. Yeah. To find yeah. out that who they're uh, you know, just think about it. If you're uh, working that anonymous source and now, especially if you're uh, a person in, in getting information on one of these uh, nation states, whether Russia or China. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the Chinese. Uh, uh, you know, security apparatus is going to be interested in finding out who the source is on uh, these human rights violations. I thought the North Korean vector was great too, because you know a lot of the hacking that the North Korean government is reported to have done is is just vengeance, because yeah. you know someone does something that offends their leader, and then the state-sponsored hackers go after uh, go after the journalists just to just to like get just cause exactly. And, but the way the phishing email that went after the journalist was a job opportunity. Of course. So which is, yeah. oh, hey, we've got a job opportunity for someone with exactly your, you know, if you do it very targeted, it seems benign. And then they dropped all sorts of awful payloads that, that well, wasn't a very it the, tough day. I want to say we were talking about it a, a couple of episodes ago, how the uh, North, you were, uh, the North Koreans were, uh, you know, they were, it may have been a legitimate job offer because they, they, you know, weren't they, uh, they were trying to, they were taking on work in other places, That's posing right. on the outside from North Korea. So that may be it, that. Who knows? That could have been a legit thing. We're looking for people to do work. I thought even the other day I got uh, we got, a, you know, everybody different gets these fishing campaigns that are, appear to be targeted to you know their profession. So I got one the other day that was like, you know, I'll give you X amount for an hour of your time. I just need you to weigh in on something. And I saw it. I was like, Psh, that's clearly fishing. You know, yeah. report, delete, move on. And then I'm talking to one of my colleagues, and he's like, "Yeah, got a couple grand the other day, just a just an hour or two of work." I was like, "Oh, you responded to that? It was you legitimate? Oh, come on!" <laughs> no, say it ain't so. so I was like, "Are so. you kidding me?" So it was pretty funny, but it, I would rather pass on a hundred opportunities than fall. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'd rather pass on two than fall for one. But maybe not pass on a hundred that fall for one. But it it is falling funny for one. Yeah. Falling for one is just one too many. Um, <laughs> yeah. I um and and not to cut you off, Jack. Um, you just sparking all this thought with what you and Ernie are both sharing. Um, on the previous uh, government network that I was on, I mean, we we dealt with this extensively, and I mean, the amount of endpoints that were on this network, we would see phishing attacks and campaigns on the regular. It was daily. Um, before I go down this rabbit hole, I want to say that Proofpoint has a very strong software and, and just platform and, and just overall infrastructure that allows for uh, security professionals to really get into the weeds to look into where the origin of all of this information is coming from. Um, but it, they, they get creative with the emails, right? They get creative with the messaging. They, they get creative with the wording and, and, and the way that the, the language um, and the communication barrier is breached. Um, most importantly, they're really trying to play on your emotions. When they're trying to socially engineer you, they want to get you to say, oh, wow, I should certainly participate in this. Oh, wow, what an opportunity. Oh, wow, this would be great. Think about the, the possibilities down the road. 
great, I got you to click. Next thing you find <laughs> out that you clicked on a, on, a, on, a, on a link that is gonna redirect you to some credential harvesting site that's gonna go ahead and take your Office 365 credentials. And then someone's gonna be able to impersonate you and get onto whatever network that they were targeting. That becomes a problem, especially if you're a VIP uh, within a uh, critical infrastructure and you're, you're someone who's a key stakeholder who holds the keys uh, to, to just say it quite figuratively, to the entire kingdom. Um, that, that's scary. And uh, what we've seen is that these identified campaigns have leveraged a variety of techniques from using web beacons, which are super noisy and I think they're super lame, um, for <laughs> reconnaissance uh, to send, or I mean, yeah, they've been using the web beacons for reconnaissance or they're sending malware to establish initial access within a target's network. Um, I don't know, um, APTs <laughs> focusing on media, um, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, there's a lot of rich information there and some people aren't as cyber savvy as they claim to be. And uh, that's okay. I mean, it's only a matter of, of time. It's, it's not if, but when. It, and there's no way you can tell because these are just outlook. One of the examples is pretty good in there. And it's the Iranian example where it's just, you know, Metro newspaper. They just, hi, I'm a senior reporter of the Metro newspaper. And I'd like to set up a time to talk to you. It's a benign email. There's no link in it. Mm -hmm. And it's just an Outlook email address that they've provided. And there's no way, there's no way you could tell if it comes in, if this is legitimate or not. You just, oh, it's an Outlook email address. Like, hmm, maybe I know that newspaper doesn't use Outlook, but maybe the person's on a train or something. So there, it's a real person. It's not automated, right? It's, it's a proper um, targeted phishing technique with human intelligence um, as what they want to gather. But you're right. I mean, at the end, the goal is to, like a spy, you're creating a relationship that at a later date, they're going to exploit. It might be exploit to harvest credentials and check out what's in the email. It might be exploiting it for purposes of, you know, um, softer forms of communication, such as influencing the research direction. But it's, uh, it's an example of, of how sometimes you can just lie and, yeah. people, and people believe you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, this, this one goes out there to all of our uh, security leaders who, who follow the podcast and uh, all of the respective uh, engineers and investigators who, who listen. But uh, I, I, I really do want to put emphasis on focusing on DKIM and DMARC. Uh, so DKIM would be your domain keys uh, within identified mail. And that protocol allows an organization to take responsibility for the messages that are being transmitted. And then DMARC would be uh, domain-based messages and authentication reporting. Um, and that's just going to help you have good control and governance on like how information is going through the wire and authenticating emails. So yeah, make sure that works. Um, and Proofpoint does a very good job at that. They, they, they do good jobs at inspecting uh, DKIM and DMARC. And uh, they also work based off of IPs and geolocations. So it's pretty neat. Um, they, they update their signatures frequently. So they're going to have relevant information when it comes to advanced persistent threats uh, going on a campaign. That's yeah. helpful. I think I feel like you hit DeMarc with that advice, Pablo. Nice. Thank you, yes. Jack. And well played, Jack. Well played. And with that said, <laughs> with that said, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to talk to Serge about his role in responding to nation state and organized crime attacks against critical infrastructure. Stick around. Looking for more no password required content? Follow us on Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at No Password Pod. All right, welcome back. Our guest is Serge Jorgensen, the founding partner and chief technology officer at the Silent Group. You've got a uh, a, a storied background, you know, uh, of you know all over doing some 
pretty, uh, I'll call it in the military parlance, some high speed, low drag type stuff. Uh, you know, how did you, how did you get started in that? So I've always been interested in, in technology and grew up uh, piecing together systems and programming and playing with computers. Uh, after uh, high school, getting into electrical engineering and uh, went through uh, college as a electrical engineer and came out and really started looking around for something that would tie all of that together. Uh, started working on some uh, intelligent design, autonomous vehicles. It was artificial intelligence at the time, but it was still a long way away. Uh, so from that point, started uh, trying to figure out how I could apply um, my, uh, my knowledge and background to different fields and settled on cybersecurity as something that was evolving at the time. And then I was uh, a professional sailor at the time as well. From that point, started into silent. Do you find any parallels between the interest in professional sailing and then in the interest in, this, in cybersecurity? Or are they, are they different parts of your brain that are operating when you're doing those two things? You know, it's both are very much about solving problems. And I think one of the things that makes uh, me and make silence successful uh, from the cybersecurity side is keeping it real, keeping it actionable. Um, I can tell you about sailing theory all day long, but when you're surfing down the back of a 25-foot wave in the middle of the Atlantic at two o'clock in the morning, theory's out the window. It, it's got to be <laughs> actionable. You know, apply it right now. And same thing when you're dealing with a, an ongoing nation-state attack against critical critical infrastructure. You don't have time to go back and assess, okay, where's the book on uh, NIST compliance and you know, what should we be doing? It's very much about how do I uh, contain the scenario, contain the situation and, uh, and start responding. We sometimes talk to folks who come out of like a accounting background and get into cybersecurity or programmers who get into cybersecurity, but you came from the electrical engineering, sort of the like hardware side of things. Does that give you a different perspective, do you think, compared to others in the field? I think so, very much. Uh, it tends to, again, be very applied and also understanding how things work from a technology perspective uh, has always served us well in figuring out uh, the evolution of cyber and understanding that whole concept of security by design uh, starts with the, the systems and starts with uh, you know, whether it's electrical impulses or whatever. Um, interesting also, you know, I mentioned some of that autonomous vehicle. Uh, so certainly I've done a lot of coding um, over the years and a lot of application development and blending those two together really helps with the, uh, the understanding of, of cybersecurity. Okay. So when you talk about uh, you know, machine learning, that's, that's kind of a buzzword nowadays, right? You know, oh, and machine learning, it's going to save us all. Uh, I'd just be interested, you know, you've been in the, you know, in this space for a long time. You see, you've seen where it's come from. You see where it is. Uh, you know, what's the, what's the real story behind it? You know, what's, I mean, are we talking, is Elon Musk right that uh, the, the Terminators are going to take over in the next five years or, uh, or is it something, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, Siri is going to be still in your pocket in five years, something along those lines. I don't know if it's going to save us all or kill us all, but uh, <laughs> it certainly it will be interesting. Um, the, the, the application of machine learning and, 
and artificial intelligence where we're, we're starting to get there of yeah. uh, people really not being able to tell the difference between um, that machine that's learning or guessing and, and that intelligence that's actually applying thought to or applying a very, very large algorithm to a problem. Um, and so what's the difference between a human that's really been learning over 20 years and takes 20 years of experience and applies that to a problem and a computer? that is learning over a long period of time and applying that. Um, I think so far, one of the big distinctions is that all of those systems uh, do well when they're applied to one particular thing, but good luck getting your Tesla to figure out how to solve a cybersecurity problem. Yeah. And good luck having your, your cybersecurity AI tool or whatever, uh, figure out how to drive a car. So when we can't uh, correlate experiences like that, then the solutions are always gonna be limited. So you know, from a perspective of, you know, will we have a Terminator and will come kill us? Um, I think everything's gonna be very point driven. Um, there are some questions right now, uh, when you look at uh, from a, a warfighter perspective mm. and you introduce artificial intelligence or machine learning in there, uh, U.S. is still pretty firm about having a, a, a human in the mix and uh, having that, okay, I, I give you the authority to, to fire this target that you're showing me. Uh, but other countries aren't necessarily following that line. And so we, we may see some interesting uh, weapon systems and, and technologies like that. Uh, it certainly it has changed over the years when I was looking at machine learning and artificial intelligence in the 90s, we just didn't have the processor power or the memory capacity to really build it out and develop it. Now, all of that stuff has shrunk significantly. So it's becoming more and more practical and more, and more functional. Along those same lines, you just got me thinking about that. You mentioned processor power. So uh, I know a lot of people talk about, you know, the impact of quantum computing. And, and, and uh, so what if you bring those two together, uh, is that like the, is that going to be the, uh, you know, the, the sound barrier moment when those two uh, technologies come together? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, sneakers, right? Is that old movie yeah. where they had That's to... right. That's right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, yeah, I think as computers get, are getting faster and faster, it's certainly providing new opportunities for uh, both protection and uh, unfortunately, offensive actions as well. Yeah. Uh, let's look for a moment at uh, proxy shell, exchange proxy shell, which was an issue zero day attack a couple of years ago. And it provided un unauthenticated access to mail servers. Mm -hmm. So if you had a mail server that was facing the internet, uh, somebody didn't know, didn't need usernames and passwords, get right in and basically could dump the mail off of that mail server. Uh, from a, uh, a threat perspective, a lot of organized crime victims, we saw you know, organized crime would get in there and use that to launch ransomware or whatever. Um, we saw some nation state activity where uh, very focused and directed uh, attacks of Chinese Russians getting into embassies and uh, different targets, different agencies that they would go after. Uh, but we did see something really interesting. 
And certainly if you extend the concept uh, and make some connections, it can be scary. And that is that there was a lot of interest uh, by the Chinese in a lot of different systems. Why would the Chinese uh, threat actors be logging into or attacking small business exchange servers? Uh, but when you cross that against the Chinese having, I guess now the second fastest or the second largest AI, big fight going on, who's the best? Um, but when you, when you cross that with the Chinese having one of the largest AI solutions in the world, um, if you then take all of the mail from all of the systems that were vulnerable to proxy shell and push that into a massive machine learning indexing system, and just ask it to start making connections. Um, you have a massive intelligence collection opportunity. And that, yeah, it could start changing the world. Privacy starts to go out the window. Um, emails that you wrote 10 years ago on a mail system that you've since deprecated, but the original, the, the recipient still had that sitting around are, you know, could now be ingested into some massive search engine so that if you uh, jaywalk in, in China and their AI engine does facial recognition, it's now possible to tie all that together and go, wait a minute, that's Ernie who sent out this email who was associated with this, this contract. Well, I can only imagine, especially seeing how uh, they, have, they have all my data because of, uh, uh, thanks to the Office of Personnel Management, yeah. uh, they, uh, they had graciously uh, handed that over to them. Uh, but uh, no, it's, it's, it is. I think we're in a, an interesting point in time because that, that's where I think you're, you're, you're right on is, is all this data is being taken and stored. And now you're going to be able to move through it, make those connections at, at incredible rates of speed that you wouldn't have been able to do before. And that's what but, could be. There's no, I mean, there's supposed to be some sort of international, I don't know, if it, relationships where they control this, right? But like, what's that? Can you talk about that connection between global markets you know, trade relations and sanctions in cybersecurity where it's working or where it's maybe not working for things like this? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting too, is that we recently saw uh, the Conti ransomware group when, when Russia decided to invade Ukraine. Uh, Conti came out pretty strong and said, hey, we're aligned with Russia. And if you uh, attack Russia or if you are adverse to Russia, then we're going to come after you from a ransomware perspective. Uh, the uh, Ukrainians uh, dumped a bunch of email and correspondence from Conti that pretty much showed that there was a more than friendly relationship between uh, the organized crime group Conti and the Russian uh, intelligence agencies. Uh, so you know, I think there's other countries have connections that the U.S. press would just be all over or or the US government has laws to prevent uh, collaboration between commercial and government interests. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think other countries around the world either don't have those laws or actively promote those connections, whether from an organized crime perspective or from, um, from an intelligence agency uh, to research company perspectives. So Absolutely. From a global market perspective, we see uh, collaboration. One of the first uh, newsworthy items, I guess, uh, 
2011, there was the uh, the Potash Corporation of uh, Saskatchewan was fighting off a hostile takeover. And all of a sudden, the law firms associated with the, that uh, takeover attempt and that, that buyout started getting attacked by Chinese uh, actors. Wow. And the thought was that they were going after uh, inside information to try to get ahead of that hostile takeover and figure out how to make it happen. Uh, certainly something that we've seen um, over the years, uh, certainly as, as early as the last uh, few months, where uh, trade negotiations might be going on, levying trade sanctions, and we see an uptick in uh, nation state actor attacks against either the, the government agency or the industry leaders that would be involved in those trade sanctions where they're trying to collect information. It is like to bring a sailing metaphor back into it. I mean, it's like privateers versus pirates. If, you know, if, if the government of Russia is making deals with private criminal actor groups, you know, they're not going to get arrested in Russia to turn it to like the U S side for a little bit, like, but to continue that sort of organized crime metaphor, if like a large retailer has like a data breach in the U S and then a lot of personal data gets collected by the bad guys and sold, you know, the person who uses then purchases that stolen information makes a bunch of fraudulent purchases, but like where is U S law doing the right. You think doing the efficient thing there. I mean, you've got the hacker and the person who buys the fence goods and then uses it to commit the fraud. Are we, are we punishing the right people, you think, with the current regime that we have? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think, you know, Jack, if you extend that further and say, uh, not only are we, are we punishing the victim potentially, uh, but are we not punishing the, uh, the person that allows uh, the, the transaction to occur? Um, and if, uh, your your pawn uh your pawn shop concept there you know somebody uh steals something pawns it uh sells it and uh and the ultimately the original owner gets punished we are seeing something like that right now with uh museums that they're getting art yanked back and they said hey you, you never should have bought this art in the first place because uh, you didn't do your your investigation, your provenance on on the artwork, and you should have known that this art was stolen or you know, needs to be repatriated. Um, I don't know if the museums are being refunded for the purchase price or the you know, money that they paid, but if they if they aren't, then that should serve as a warning for them of before you spend millions of dollars on a piece of art, make sure that it's not stolen. And um, but if if we extend that to the same concept of um, if a, if a Nigerian prince walked into a bank <laughs> and said, "Hey, I need to open up an account for Ernie," and they said, "Okay, sure, no problem. Here you go," and they just did this magic twirl and they said, "Hey, I need to open up an account for Jack," uh, you know, the bank, the, the person at the front desk could look at him and say, "Wait a minute, yeah, no, it's crazy. Something, yeah. Something's yeah. wrong here," um, but. Uh, online somehow we let them do that can you just kind of um just talk a little bit about how the payment card industry and the card issue is sort of policed themselves yeah i think they recognized in in the late 90s early 2000s that they were going to have to get better at this themselves 
And it, uh, I think the reason why is because they're really playing with their own money. Uh, they, when you go to a store and buy something on your credit card, uh, the store gets paid on that within a couple of days. And the, uh, the credit card user then gets the bill in 30 days and, and looks at the bill and goes, I'm not paying that. That's you know, $400 lawnmower at Home Depot. That's not me. Uh, so so the, uh, the credit card user was never really out that money because they would just refuse to pay. Um, but that meant the credit card companies all of a sudden and the banks had to be better at detecting the fraud. Otherwise, they were out the $400 uh, because you know, Home Depot has already gotten their $400. So, so they were the kind of the ones on the hook. And because of that, they've spent billions of dollars and a lot of time and energy. And now even the, the advertisements for the cards are often about the security of the card. So now you go online and you say, hey, you should use Discover because you have the ability to freeze it immediately. And um, you have all these protections in place. And you're not responsible for anything. And the, the algorithms, machine learning, AI, whatever, have gotten better uh, at detecting that fraud and, and automatically turning off the, the cards. So that's an area where self-policing, but kind of in their own self-interest, they've successfully extended that to uh, making it sexy for the end user. And the end user's choosing to, to use that. Uh, because of the extra security benefits, whereas some other industries, you know, not so much. Um, banking, wire fraud, business email compromise, massive issue. And Jack, I imagine you yep. and the firm work on a ton of these. Yep. Um, the uh, the issue there, the bank isn't out the money. It's it's the account holder that's on the hook. Um, so, sure, the bank's trying to help, but from their perspective, it's not their million dollars or whatever that's been transferred. 90% of conversations about technology involve what I'm about to say next. What about cryptocurrency? <laughs> right. Like, has we that changed? Go, we can't go one episode without it. Yeah. yeah, I've heard about this thing called crypto. What Has that changed the work you do at Sonic Group? How are you guys getting involved in, in, in this sort of either the crypto world or the blockchain world? Where's your point of access for that? It, it has uh, three areas, I would say. One way, one area is uh, crypto mining. And certainly um, anytime you provide the opportunity to make money by using a computer, uh, one of the, the most expensive parts about crypto mining is power. Yeah. So we see a lot of threat actors or insider threats, people at companies, um, installing mining tools on somebody else's <laughs> computers. Uh, because if I don't have to pay for the power, then I, I, you know, it's, uh, I make money. If I, I have say to that was up in uh, just uh, just north of us. That was one of the public sector. They got a, They got a. They got their electrical bill one month, and like, hey, what what is this? And it turns out somebody. Uh, <laughs> you look at the usage, and gee, our power seems to be going up between five in the evening and you know, and, and, and six in the morning. What's going on there? Yeah, and they had a somebody, some enterprising young. Uh, uh, young employee had a had set up their crypto mine on the company on the uh, organizational servers. 
So we see, um, same note, we see threat actors going after people's uh, Amazon AWS instances. Uh, had a university actually that got hit that had a massive um, uh, compute array set up for uh, DNA sequencing. And the threat actors got in there and just cranked this thing all the way up to mine Monero. <laughs> Uh, and no one noticed it until one of the researchers said, hey, why is my DNA modeling taking so long? And they went in and figured out that it was because the machine was busy doing math for, for oh, Monero mining. Because this supercomputer is using 80% of its resources. That sets, us back, that sets us back from having shark-human hybrids like six months, Ernie. Right. That's right. Exactly. Oh, I man. mean, we would. this is flying cars. This is why we would have been, this is why what's keeping us back from all this stuff. It's, so we got crazy. that one. We also have, you know, obviously, easier to move money. So, you know, it's anonymized and, and I can move money around the world. Um, so we have that issue. Uh, and certainly tracking those things, uh, government's trying to get better at it. Uh, we're always doing some work in it, but um, that's an area. And then also with cryptocurrency, uh, unfortunately, it's made it a lot easier for uh, people, uh, investors to, to lose money because they lose access to their wallets or their cryptocurrency wallets are hacked. Um, so we, we just see a lot of cases around either that or how do I secure it? And how do I um, you know, try to keep this stuff safe? Because now my money isn't sitting in a bank somewhere that's FDIC insured or is in property or whatever. It's, it's transportable. And if somebody else has my password, then they can access my billions of cryptocurrency. It's and the last one, the last one for that, the, the cryptocurrency, the interesting one, um, Colonial Pipeline, I can use that as an example, where uh, they paid $4 million in, in ransom. And the FBI, for whatever reason, decided that they were going to use that as an example of their, their skill or, or breadth of, of reach. And they pulled it back out of the cryptocurrency wallets and, and gave it back to, um, to Colonial Pipeline. In the meantime, though, uh, the cryptocurrency had lost half its value. Uh, so they paid four and got back two million, um, mostly because the, uh, the cryptocurrency had, had devalued in that time frame. So that's the other piece that we see a bit of is uh, those questions of uh, investment and, and movement and growth and, and the value. So <laughs> when a, a threat actor says, hey, you owe me uh, four Bitcoin, it's always, is that Four million dollars, or for Bitcoin, or what do you want, <laughs> so that we can settle on this transaction in fee? I'm going to pick the smallest number of those and just say that that's what it Which... is, and then at the end, be surprised when you say it's something different. Oh, four million Bitcoin—that's not even a real number. All right, Serge. You know, we talked about some nation-state actors. Can you give some examples of how nation-states are weaponizing data privacy? Sure, we talked a little bit about uh, data collection and just pulling all this data together, putting it into a machine learning engine, indexing it. Um, the uh, again, China is a great example there, where they're uh, they're putting uh, this social uh, your uh, your social ranking, and if you are caught on camera jaywalking or not picking up after your dog or whatever, then you may not be able to buy a, a train ticket out of your area uh, because your social rank is, is going down because you're not uh, a responsible citizen. But, but even more interesting than that is some things that we would say here in the US 
uh, I would trust that Google is not going to necessarily give my data, give access to my mailbox to, uh, to China if they just happen to request it. Um, they're going to say, well, wait a minute. No, that's, that's a, a legal request. Go file your claim or file your, your request in U.S. court. And if the Supreme Court ultimately decides that they need access to the data, then I'll, yes, I'll have to give it to them. But I'm not going to do that just because the government asked. Um, but that's not the same with uh, some Chinese um, or uh, Russian or Iranian or whatever uh, agencies. The, the requirement there to comply with government requests is a lot uh, narrower or a lot more enforced, a lot stronger. Uh, so when, uh, when we have data localization requirements and when Russia says um, Twitter has to keep all of the information about Russian Twitter accounts in Russia, well, that may not be because they want to keep it safe out of US intelligence agency hands or something. It's probably because they want to be able to walk into that office and say, you're sitting in uh, Russia, we'll use some rubber hose decryption if you don't want to give us that key and uh, get access to the data so that we can track our activists. Um, so it's that issue. Um, interestingly, China, well, huh, Hong Kong, Hong Kong uh, Data Privacy Commission just passed a law uh, this time last year saying that um, they, are, they believe in data privacy and it's so important to them that if the data privacy authority uh, makes a request for information to protect people, um, to any company in the world, and that request is not honored, then the local Hong Kong employees at that company may be subject to arrest to enforce that request. Uh, I, uh, anywhere else in the world, that sounds like blackmail or extortion or something like that. All right. After a short break here, we're going to return with Ernie's lifestyle polygraph. Please stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. All right, welcome back. All right, Serge, as you probably know, uh, because of your, your, uh, your brushes with work with the national security apparatus, you've probably heard of something called a lifestyle polygraph. And a lifestyle polygraph is an intensive uh, question session in order to determine a person's eligibility and suitability for access to some of the nation's most closely guarded secrets. However, here, uh, no password required, we subject our guests to a similar invasive, uh, uncomfortable, and oftentimes uh, mentally painful uh, series of questions to probe the inner mind uh, to determine who you are as a person. So that said, are you ready? No passwords required. Lifestyle polygraph. Sure, let's go. <laughs> okay, all right. So it's a series of five questions. Five questions, and here's we're going to start with number one. Number one question. All right, here it is. How did being curious manifest itself when you were a kid? Um, and definitely taking everything apart and sometimes having to rely on, on dad to help put it back together again. Because I 
we got to track the pieces as I was, was pulling it apart. Uh, but uh, probably just being investigative as well, uh, looking at everything with an eye of, of curiosity and how does that work? Uh, how, what else can I do with that, that thing? Uh, not being limited to um, you know, using a, a box as a box. One of my you know, first cool toys that I can remember was this big box that parents had painted uh, to represent a cable car and you know, great times in that. And, yeah, I, I like to think that that's probably what started that curiosity. And um, as a kid, uh, certainly um, exploring as well and sailing from a young age, uh, just getting in boats and going places that um, probably a good thing that I managed to come home safe, but <laughs> it was <laughs> just being uh, a lot of exploring and, and investigating. Here it is. Ready for this? What was your favorite toy as a kid? And it can't be the the it can't be the cable car, uh, the the cable car simulator. Oh, great, thanks. Um, <laughs> you know, probably a uh, a metal tractor with a backhoe that I just love playing with and and digging in the uh, in the backyard and then uh, dragging back up flights of stairs to uh, to put it away again. But was this a uh... Was this an all metal toy or was this, did this have lots of plastic in it? No, it was all metal, which yeah. starts to put a time frame and date me a little bit, but uh, yeah, all metal, uh, heavy as heck for a. Yeah. Three, one of those Tonka old. trucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now I, I remember those were, those were cool. Cause it had the, you could manipulate the actual backhoe. It, it, it was hinged and articulated in the same way that it acted in, in a, like a real one. So it was just, it was cool to have one of those. And my parents claimed that they could hear me coming up the stairs because I was just <laughs> going clunk, clunk, clunk as it's coming up the stairs behind me. Do you remember the first like computer keyboard that you put your fingers on? You like, do you remember the first time you sat in front of a terminal with a blinking cursor and got to do stuff on it? You know, that was a, a TI ninety-five, maybe. Uh, what we would think is a calculator. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know exactly the, what you're talking about. The magnetic oh. strip reader at the top of it. And uh, oh. you could run the magnetic strips through and code them and, and play games on them. So it was, and then beyond that, you know, it's everything else that we've seen. Best computer in the world. Yeah, but that yeah, the, it defines sometimes defines relationships with with computers going forward. You know, but uh, those some of those calculators, those. Uh, then it became graphing calculators and you could program in some of those too. And, you know, the little games people had that they traded on them. Uh, I think a lot of people learned on those, which is kind of cool. All right, here we go. Number three, when you have spare time, do you search out activities that involve problem solving? Yes. And you know, some of those are, are very much in my face. I would say, uh, being married and, and bringing up kids is certainly problem solving enough, uh, but uh, you know, certainly sailing is great for that. And, and some of my, um, my non-computer activities, um, but it is, I think it's a source of uh, irritation sometimes for, for people around me that uh, you know, cybersecurity uh, and, and this field is so interesting and, and fascinating that uh, sometimes that is that when I have spare time, the problem solving is 
okay, we have this new uh, attack vector, we have this new attack technique, how are we going to develop a defense against it? Or, or let's sit down and figure out what is coming next and what some uh, upcoming attack vectors might be. So, so even that problem solving in, in spare time uh, tends to be just uh, so much fun and, and such a challenge. Sure, just, just kind of coming off that, I've always been just wondered this, I'm gonna take the opportunity to ask this question. With all that you know, and all the intelligence that you gather on real-time basis, and all the profits you see the bad guys making, how do you stay on the good guy side? Are you ever tempted, like, pull a Lex Luthor? Uh, no, uh, okay. it's, it's more frustrating than anything else, uh, but never had any temptation that way. Okay, that's good. Are you we referring gotta... to Superman 3? Wasn't that, was that, was that the Lex Luthor one? <laughs> that was the one with Richard Pryor in it, I think. Uh... Using the skills for good. <laughs> that's right. It's true. You sleep well. You can sleep well at night. Yeah, that's that's the thing. You can sleep well at night. Okay, here we go. Oh, this is a good one. Here we go. What is your go-to meal when you're pulling long hours at the office? What is your go-to meal? Uh, it's got to be coffee and cold pizza. Coffee uh, and cold pizza. And, and I'm going to go. And we got to. What type of pizza? You say deep uh, dish, and you may get struck by lightning. You know, I'm just. I'm, I'm just saying. I would say long hours in the office, I would say either whatever's open or whatever in the refrigerator. <laughs> I like it. so it's, Available. That's you can't get picky. It's just, so. <laughs> we were, I was watching TV a couple days ago with my son and it was a commercial, he's 11 years old. There's a commercial on for deep dish pizza. And I guess he had never heard of deep dish pizza or we hadn't had a conversation about it. And he's like uh, trying to sell me. He's like, Hey, see that pizza there? <laughs> looks pretty good. That deep dish pizza looks pretty good. So we have to get deep dish pizza this weekend. But it's like, could you imagine there was a time when some, when, when, when as a child, all of us didn't know what deep dish pizza was and then you learn about it and then there's no going back from learning. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, and, then, and, then, and then, of course, then it's, then it, you have the potential of it being, uh, you know, a civil war, families destroyed between deep dish, New York style. Uh, you know, it just, these are, these are, these are, but these are the thorny issues that we deal with here in the, the 21st century. What, uh, what type of pizza? Brother against brother. Uh, I like it, Serge, too, that you're not picking like a handful of, you know, quinoa seeds and, and uh, you know, and, and, a, and a organic fruit juice. Like you're, you're kind of old school. Like, I'm going to take pizza and, so, and the worst coffee you have. That's right. Is this coffee fresh? No, I'll take it then. If I were put a, to put a flower in this coffee right now, the flower would die immediately. That's the kind of coffee I like. Uh, okay, we're going to go on to number five. Here it is. <clears throat> Lifestyle polygraph. Number five. Can you talk more about your more than a decade of experience coaching sailing at the Paralympic Games? Uh, doing your homework. Um, yeah, so I, uh, um, as I was going through school, was uh, looking for something else to do and uh, was uh, getting involved more and more in, in sailing and was approached by one of the uh, Paralympic sailing teams. So uh, Paralympic sailing for people with uh, physical disabilities. So uh, amputees, paraplegics, quadriplegics, and ended up coaching the, uh, uh, the 1996 Paralympic games in Atlanta. And then uh, again in Sydney, and then again in Greece and uh, ended up running the International Federation um, 
for the games in China. Certainly learned a lot um, traveling around the world for that and, and meeting a lot of a lot of people outside of their normal um, roles. So meeting with kings and queens and and uh, ministers of defense and amazing how many people sail for recreation. So I had some really great conversations and managed to sneak in some some cybersecurity discussions and uh, <laughs> other conversations as we were out on the race course, uh, but certainly incredibly rewarding and uh, just so much fun working, again, solving problems though, and being curious. Because if, uh, if you've got somebody that you're sailing with um, or you're coaching sailing and they can't move their legs or they can, um, their entire way of, of moving the boat is sipping and puffing through a straw, uh, then the, the, uh, the engineering that has to go into solving those problems is very similar to some of the solutions and problems that come up with um, in the digital world, but it, it kept it very real. Uh, one of my, my favorite stories from that, and, and it's just something that, that still reminds me today to be a little empathetic and really try to put yourself into the victim's shoes and into the, uh, um, the, the other person's um, position, was we spent months developing a, uh, a spinnaker pole that could be launched off the front of one of the sailboats and uh, could be launched from the cockpit because if you're uh, paraplegic, if you're quadriplegic, you can't get out of the cockpit of the boat to go up on the foredeck to, to launch the spinnaker. And so we would uh, do, spend all this time developing it, testing it, shove the boat off the dock, go sailing for the day, come back. And the entire crew is just saying, this is the worst thing ever. This, how does this work? This, and I'm looking at it going, it works great. Um, and they're saying, you know, okay, if you think it's so great, come over here and, and use it. Jump on the boat, pull, through, pull the lines, the pole launches flawlessly, everything works great. And I look at them and say, what's wrong with that? And they said, sit down. And I sat down and nothing worked because we had done everything as if I'm standing in the cockpit and they can't stand. And as soon as you sit down, it just changed the angle on everything and nothing worked. So we brought it back to the, the uh, design room and started re-architecting everything. But it really just always reminds me to make sure that you're looking at things from that other perspective. And, and I think that was one of the big takeaways uh, from my experience in, in coaching was really making sure that when we're looking at a solution, when we're uh, trying to put something together, cyber, life, whatever, um, got to make sure that we're looking at it from, from all sides. Well, I tell you, that's, you know, that right there, that's, uh, that's, that's the top shelf answer that uh, I think we've heard. So Serge, thank you very much. Uh, you know, for spending some time with us today uh, and joining us. Uh, if our listeners uh, would like to connect with you, how would they do that? Uh, Ernie, thanks very much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. And, and certainly great show, great uh, team that you've got here. So thanks a lot. Um, certainly anytime, welcome to send me an email, uh, sjorgensen at silent.com and uh, reach out LinkedIn, also silent and uh, certainly website. One thing, you know, silent, that S-Y-L-I-N-T, 
it's funny. It's I've gotten to the point where I can't spell silent correctly anymore because every time I see it, it, it looks like it's spelled wrong. Uh, but uh, we came up with that name with uh, the SYL is a collection of, uh, and it's it's Greek and Latin for for pulling together, and then INT for intelligence, like the military of human intelligent and comment. Um, so SYL INT for us is really that collection of intelligence. So happy to talk. Anyone wants to reach out, um, certainly uh, happy to dive into cybersecurity with them. That's excellent. And so folks stick around because coming up next is Technolog with Pablo Torres. If you want to stay on top in cybersecurity, you have to learn something new every day. It's time to get educated. Welcome to Technolog, game show edition. Welcome to Technolog, Game Show Edition. I'm your host, Pablo Torres. On today's segment, we will pull the veil back on the world's largest and most notable hacking convention, DEF CON. This fusion of the world's most prominent security researchers is held annually in Las Vegas. DEF CON was founded by then 18-year-old Jeff Moss as a farewell party for his friend, a fellow hacker and member of PlatinumNet. A hackers conference held in a Vegas casino definitely brings in odd optics. Um, the best comparison that I can make, and I had to look this one up, it's like driving Miss Daisy meets the Matrix. Who would have ever imagined? So prepare yourselves, prepare your noggin, prepare that intuitive judgment, and let's get ready to do some high-speed cybersecurity, cyber culture assessments. Let's get started. On today's panel, we have Mr. Jack Clavy, Mr. Ernie Ferraresso, we have our sound engineer, Devin Malice, and uh, lo and behold, Serena, the woman behind all of this, Miss Serena Gandhi. All right, question one. This is going to be a hard one, fastball. What year did DEF CON founder Jeff Moss host the first hacker meetup in Las Vegas? Serena, we'll start with you. Um, my guess is 1980. All right. Mr. Clabby? We'll go with 1998. Okay, okay. Ernie? I'm gonna go 96. Oh, wow. Devin, what do you believe? I'm thinking 92. Devin, yeah, you're, you're taking that one away. Um, second, second closest was Serena, third closest was Jack. The answer is 1993. Oh, cool. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh. On points. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's go, Devin. Man, out of nowhere. Point, That's I beginner's know. luck. First timer's luck. Hey, he's a sleeper. He's, 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 he's in there. <laughs> so fun fact, the term DEFCON comes from the movie War Games, and uh, it's referencing the U.S. Armed Forces Defense Readiness Condition, also known as DEFCON. In the movie, Las Vegas was selected as a nuclear target, and since the event was being hosted in Las Vegas, it occurred to Jeff Moss to name the convention DEFCON. Question number two, and uh, we'll start off with Mr. Clavy. What is the top recorded attendance outcome for a DEF CON meetup in its history? 40,000. That's good, man. Ernie? People, 40,000 people. 40, yeah. Top recorded. Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to, 
I don't know if it's. I, I'm gonna go thirty thousand. I'm gonna go just underneath there. That gives us a ten a ten k buffer there, Jack. So I'm not running all over you. you know. Serena. All right, I'm gonna go bigger. I'm gonna say fifty thousand. Oh, that's a lot of hackers. Wow. <laughs> well, it is Las Vegas, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking around thirty thousand too. Well, damn, Devin. Okay, uh, Ernie, Devin, you guys are gonna have to split that point uh, <laughs> because the answer is thirty thousand. Um, Good job, Ernie. <laughs> that's right, my friend. That's what I like to hear. Right, it's point five a piece. Those, like other, those other 10,000 that I was thinking of, you know, they just got their way in without having to pay. That, so yeah, that, yeah, that's classic the, hacker. Classic <laughs> hacker. <laughs> well, well, I'm not okay. going to protest it. Yeah. Oh, protest. You, you only meant legitimate, you know, paying customers. Oh, yeah. well, yeah. in that case. Classic. <laughs> My goodness. A couple, egg, couple of eggheads here. Right. The, the, ticket, the ticket take. Like, who, who let those guys in? Um, this, this top count was in 2019 and, uh, this was for DEF CON 27, uh, where we had 30,000, uh, let's call them security researchers go out and mingle, <laughs> mingle to, to, you know, just network within the community. Is that the polite I mean, term? Is that, is that, you know, cause I, every time I say nobody calls them hackers anymore, man. And that's, uh, of we, course, that's, that's my, that's, that's how younger people talk to me, man. Uh, man. Nobody calls them hackers, man. Listen, Grandpa. Yeah, exactly. Hey, old man. Listen, 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 Linda. It's <laughs> it's, uh, it's um, security. Security researchers uh, is appropriate. Um, if you wanted to, to talk about a, a technical uh, approach, uh, we would say DevSecOps engineers. Ah, um, oh, that's a cool one. That's a good one. I like that. DevSecOps engineer. Okay. Yeah, they get creative and they like to tinker, and I'm, I'm right there with them. Um, but I'm, I'm on the other end of the spectrum where I'm, I'm looking for those who are tinkering. Question number three. How many hackers attended the first DEF CON back in 1993? Devin, let's, let's start off with you, sir. I'm going to go with a low number. 60? Okay. 60 is his answer. Ernie, what do you believe? Five. Five. I'm going Man. with five. That's a real low number. That's right. I think I think that's a many in, in those early '90s. There wasn't many of those guys running around. That's what oh. that was, and they didn't have money back then too. So it's not like they're going to Vegas and living it up. They're like yeah, we're, we're using clamshells back that, then. I that's think, right. That, that that, that's a, that's a, it was Atari. It was a, a, <laughs> they, they were trading Nintendo it's cartridges. Atari. It that's was, right. Yeah. I'm going to go with 100 people. 100. Serena, I'm going to guess 90. All right. Well, Sally was surely selling seashells by the DEF CON shore because only 100 people got in. <laughs> there it is. There it is. There it is. Good job, Jack. Right. Very good job. Serena, you were right there. Um, in, in, in year two, those numbers more than doubled. And um, very interesting to, to, to note, our friend, Wynn Charteau, wrote a semi-fictionalized account of DEFCON 2, and he called it Cyber Christ meets Lady Luck. That man's full of surprises. That he, that he <laughs> is. That he is. I mean, yeah, we'll, have to we'll have to get Wynn back around to have him to talk a little bit about I that adventure. <laughs> That's when, awesome. When, I'm going to yeah. look that. That is, I got to look yeah. that. I got to find that document. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. definitely win, win for, a rant, uh, for a round two. Yeah, it, it's that, definitely BA. Yeah. Because well, you got to talk, I just got to think. 
at back then, uh, that's when, you know, this was, there was no, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, uh, nerd billionaires and all that. This was still, if you were in computers and, and you were still, uh, you were still classified as nerd and not, an, and that wasn't a good thing. That was, you know, yeah, you were just barely coming out of the 80s when nerds were pariahs. Well, you had to buy in 94, you had to buy a, a plane ticket over the phone. I mean, you, we weren't, I don't know if there was even the internet for That's buying true. a plane ticket. I mean, do yeah. you want to go to Las Vegas? You got to plan. You, I mean, it's a, it's, it's not like, oh, let's see what Southwest has and hop on a plane. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, question number four. This is a fun one. How much prize money was awarded to the team that won the 2021 DEFCON Hackasat competition? So before you answer that, the Hackasat competition is where they hacked into the Air Force's um, satellite. So that was that was the challenge. So um, to give you a little background on that. All right. Back to you, Pablo. Thank you. I appreciate that, Rex. Yep. We're hacking into satellites and uh, there was a team out there. I'm not going to say who yet. Um, that was successful in, 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 in making sure that the objective came to fruition. I'm going to say prize was six Bitcoin. Oh, Bitcoin at uh, today's price or Bitcoin at uh, all time highs? <laughs> I will say $60,000. Ernie, you're next, sir. Here you go. I'm, this is a bold one. I'm going to get in close. Zero dollars. Zero. They won no money. Oh, twist question. Sir, Sir, what? You just created this sliding scale from zero dollars all the way up to six BTC. So how are we going to eat? Come on. I, I'm, I'm leaning more towards the Carlton Field CFT 2023. Listen, to quote <laughs> one of our greatest Americans, you will receive no money, but on your deathbed, you will gain total consciousness. So I got and that going for me. <laughs> that's there's that <laughs> Devin what do you think uh, I'm gonna go with a standard prize for uh, 10,000 okay okay Give, giving us some credit here thank you thank you Devin um, Miss Serena what do you what do you think I'm gonna say 25,000 okay Serena knows that inflation is hitting so I mean <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay the answer is fifty thousand dollars. Okay. Wow. Nice. Nobody yeah. believed in it. Nobody believed in it. Serena, oh, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Good job. Wait, I wasn't close. That's got to be clabby. I thought oh. I was six. I was sixty thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, he's sixty. Uh, Serena was twenty-five. But but, clabby, clabby said six bitcoins at all-time highs for three hundred and sixty thousand oh. dollars. No, I thought I, said, current rate. I, I thought I. I thought I just said 60,000. Oh, no worries, Serena, take the point. <laughs> Back off, Bobby. I'm, I'm excited. going to fight you for it, man. No, if I couldn't make myself clear as a, as a professional communicator, I don't deserve as a, as a Serena. As a judge, I'm giving a point to both. Uh, I'll, yeah, right. Nice, nice. I, I, I'll deal with that. Hey, yeah, uh, we had to go, go to the judges. That's I'm right. still I'm still fired up about this uh, Carlton Fields uh, Capture the Flag 2023. So... <laughs> You heard it here first. I can't even imagine what the what the paperwork would be like to, to achieve <laughs> that. That would be scary. Um, fun fact about the $50,000 grand prize, over 1,000 teams participated in a qualification event. 
the eight highest scoring teams moved on to the final satellite hacking competition of which the team solar wine as in the cork the wine cork um a team of individuals from belgium france uh switzerland and martis i butchered that one Martis. Martis. Yeah. Martis. Yeah. Yeah. They, they won the competition. Highly diverse, very dynamic team of some brilliant minds that got into some satellites. And I'm jealous because I aspired to work for Starlink and uh, to, to do satellite enterprise security. And they did. I think one of the things they did was they, was they were able to get the satellite to turn around or turn the camera around and take a picture of the moon instead of the constant picture of the Earth because it was facing the Earth. That's one of the things they were able to manipulate it to do. Wow. Yeah, pretty that's cool. That's epic. Wow. Yeah, that's really. Did they cool. clear this with NASA, like, or they clear with the private whoever it was? It was is operating. It was yeah. It was um, the it's Air the Air Force and some other it was Air another Force, government yeah. agency that was involved okay. in it. That but yeah, it was a whole sanctioned deal. Yeah, okay. they were involved, and it was really it was I think it was DOD. I wouldn't think it was DOD. Okay. Yeah, Air Force, and they were both really happy with the result from the, from what I read. They, they got a lot wow. more inquiries uh, based on that. So pretty cool. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, very cool. You, you got to think about it. I mean, from a DoD perspective, I mean, you have Homeland Security, and then from Homeland Security, you have CISA. So when it comes to critical infrastructure, satellites themselves are something that are are, are highly sought after. Um, if you can disrupt communication wow. satellite-wise, I mean, what happens down on the Earth? Um, but that's a whole nother rabbit hole and string to pull on. But yeah, DOD, HSI, CISA. Wow. Air Force, of course. Air Force uh, drove the project. Um, question number five. Chris Kubeka, the founder and CEO of Hipposec, is the 2022 DEF CON keynote speaker. How many Twitter followers do you think she has? Devin, I'm, I'm curious to hear your answer. Uh, let's go with a million. Oh, well. Serena? I'm going to say 57,000. All right, all right. Mr. Ernie? 563,202. All of you guys need to get into the social media game and start helping build some brands. Um, Mr. Jack? I'm going to go with the equivalent of six Bitcoins. <laughs> Well played. Well played, no, no. sir. I'm missing everyone. I, I want to make my guess quite clear. It is going to be 115,000. 115,000. Oh, man, all I'm thinking about is Bitcoin, and we're talking about Twitter followers. <laughs> this okay. is how you got to be able to think when you're on this show. You got to be able to make all those connections. Just I know. Together. I'm being pulled in so many different directions in my mind right now. Um, the answer. 23,032 followers. That's right. Mm -hmm. yes. Serena with the wind. Point. <laughs> yeah. Serena has that intuition. Um, fun fact about uh, Chris. So Chris Kubeka is an American computer security researcher and a cyber warfare specialist. In 2012, she was responsible for getting the Saudi Armco network back up and running after it was hit by one of the world's most devastating cyber attacks. Shamoon. Um, just a little background on that cyber attack itself. 
um, I think it's important to note that the, the damage that it caused, it was it was severely extensive. I mean, the, the kingdom's oil giant found itself hit by the so-called Shamoon com computer virus, which deleted hard drives um, and it displayed a picture of a burning American flags and that attack forced uh, Aramco to shut down its network and destroy over 30,000 computers. So think about, I mean, for them, maybe the operational expenditure and capital expenditure was nominal, but still that would that would destroy uh, other enterprises. Yeah, I want to say that was that was the thing. It, it was one of the first uh, incidents where it was actually like causing physical damage and destruction to the the actual system. So it was, yeah, it was a it was a pretty big deal. That concludes our Technologue Game Show Edition, and that brings us to the end of our program. Thank you so much for joining us. First and foremost, I have to thank my co-hosts Jack Clabby and Pablo Torres. And also, a special thanks to our guest, Serge Jorgensen. He's out, he's out there on the, the helm of our ships, helping us sail through the cyber ocean and take, reminding us that it's important to take other people's perspective uh, as we're going forward. So now, just remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required podcast. You can find us on social media at No Password Pod and send your questions or comments to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. And if you'd like some show swag, just ask, and we'll hook you up. I'm Ernie Ferreso. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required Podcast. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. A special thanks goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields and Second Watch. If you would like to learn more about the show, visit our website at cyberflorida.org slash pod. And if you still need more show content, check out our social media at NoPasswordPod.